Hello, this is Jim McCarty, welcoming you to the LNL Research Law of One podcast, episode number 90. LNL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And towards this end, has two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. I'm joined today by Gary and Austin, our regulars, and our special guest, Red, from Asheville, North Carolina. In this podcast, we discuss spiritual topics through the lens of the law of one and our own spiritual personal experiences. We hope to only offer a resource and provide discussion, not to present ourselves as authorities with the final word on these subjects. Please exercise your utmost discernment while you listen to us ramble on. Many of the topics we discuss on the podcast come from questions sent in by seekers. If you have a question or topic you'd like for us to discuss, please send it in. You can email them to us at contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Jim McCarty, and this is a Law of One LL Research podcast. Okay, folks, today we are talking about forgiveness and karma. And one of the few quotes from the Law of One on them combined comes from uh, session number 18. And the questioner asks, you stated yesterday that forgiveness is the eradicator of karma. I'm assuming that balanced forgiveness for the full eradication of karma would require forgiveness not only of other selves, but forgiveness of self. Am I correct? I am Ra. You are correct. We will briefly expand upon this understanding in order to clarify. Forgiveness of other self is forgiveness of self. An understanding of this insists upon full forgiveness upon the conscious level of self and other self, for they are one. A full forgiveness is thus impossible without the inclusion of self. So my first question is, could forgiveness then be a kind of healing? If so, how? And how does that relate to the stopping of the wheel of karma? Red, how would you like to start us off? Thank you, Jim. Um, it's very lovely to be here with you all today. Um, yeah, for the first question, could forgiveness be a kind of healing I do believe that it can be a kind of healing. Um, I believe forgiveness is often needed when we do things as a result of unhealed or unseen emotional trauma. So the way I see it, true forgiveness requires addressing of the trauma in some way. And so in addressing that trauma and healing it, um, it does seem that they're inextricably connected. And um, for the second part of the question, how does that relate to stopping the wheel of karma? I think the more we do the work of healing our own trauma, the work of knowing ourselves so that we can accept ourselves and show up as less and less distorted versions of the creator, then not only would existing karma continue to clear, but the creation of new karma would also become less and less. So I think that as we do the work of knowing ourselves and healing ourselves and accepting ourselves, that we become so much more aware of what we're contributing or radiating into the collective and also what we're absorbing or taking from the collective. So the more we're aware of these things, the more intentional we can be about how we show up in the world, about how we want to be in the world. Um, 
I'm definitely discovering over these past many months or mm-hmm. maybe the past year that it's, I feel like it's, um, it's our responsibility to be as intentional about what we contribute to the collective as possible. And part of that is at least uh, my own personal intention is to strive to give more back to the system or the ecosystem that I'm taking. And I'm imagining pockets of communities consisting of individuals that all strive for this, creating a self-aware ecosystem or organism. And I think that when we practice forgiveness and experiencing and, and experience the slowing down or stopping the wheel of karma as a community, I see that as building and boosting the immune system of that ecosystem or that organism or potential social memory complex, if you will. That's beautiful. What then comes to my mind is that you're really saying that if we can practice the forgiveness between ourselves and whomever else we are involved, that this affects more than just the two of us. It affects the group that we're in, or perhaps even the, could you say the planet itself? Is there a way that this type of forgiveness goes into the the planetary mind, shall we say, and has a resonance there? I absolutely believe so. I think that the macrocosm is the microcosm. And so if we start with the microcosm, it it radiates out from there. And um, yeah, and what you're talking about, and when you're asking about, you know, it's not just the two people, it's more than that, it's the community. I see us building kind of like a mycelial network. Um, I'm picturing something like the movie Avatar, you know, like all the, the <laughs> connections that we could see. That is beautiful. I really like that a lot. Uh, Gary, what's your take on this? What your own opinion and what Red said too. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Red. Um, <clears throat> I see there's a lot in the law of one that can be studied on the level of intellect alone. You can learn about densities and, and uh, the other mechanics of spiritual evolution. But forgiveness is one area where, like faith, um, it really needs embodied and practiced and learned. And it is a very hard lesson to learn in the life pattern as there are so many opportunities to be hurt or injured and why how how could forgiveness be a kind of healing you asked um i started exploring that by asking myself why is there ever a necessity for forgiveness why do we have a word called forgiveness and uh in a really simplified kind of way i think the need for forgiveness arises because we become injured as we perceive it, whether something actually did or did not happen to us in our perception, we have been injured and we thus block love to our hearts. And consequently, we fragment and distort our vision of the one creator in others and in self. Like we cut ourselves off from reality and unity, and instead we we um, reinforce an illusion of separation. So to forgive then is to re-allow that love and understanding of the creator to flow back into and through our hearts. It is to heal, it's to restore that which has been rejected or scorned or blamed or judged and and, and punished. And, uh, or to put that another way, Ra says that unity 
uh, cannot abhor anything because unity contains everything. So if unity or the creator is not rejecting or abhorring or judging, then who is doing it? It's the incarnate entity. And the incarnate entity does this because they become, as Ra said, blinded by separation. So when we don't forgive and when we look at the perpetrator as we may see them and we don't see the creator, we instead see an object that we don't love. Uh, perhaps we relate to this object or this person uh, with hate or we hold on to hope for their own suffering or some negative outcome for them. Um, so again, the lack of forgiveness does not transcend the individual self and, and touch into um, the reality of unity, but instead keeps us locked inside into separation. And regarding the wheel of karma, this is something that's, that's puzzled me and I've thought over it. And I like uh, what Red said, particularly in context of community. I hadn't really explored that thread uh, in my own thinking. But as to the wheel of karma, it seems that karma is, creates a sort of binding action on the self. The self accumulates or accrues or kicks into motion karma and they are bound to that energy. So Ra describes a whole universe, all the densities and all the entities as having an upward vector that is designed to facilitate the journey from being a separate entity to once again, realizing the self as the creator. So if I, one can resist this upward vector by holding on to enmity. And if they, in other words, by not forgiving. And if they do that, then the mechanisms and gears of the universe will continue to operate to give that self the opportunity to balance and heal and restore the vision. Uh, so that the self is not bound to that energy any longer, is not holding on to that past, and can join the upward flow of evolution toward wholeness, if, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, well, yeah, that was very good, Gary. Um, just out of curiosity, as I was uh, listening to you, I was thinking uh, the Lord's Prayer as a, you know, basically uh, Christian upbringing is what most of us have had, uh, mentions forgiveness. But for me, I never really started to think about forgiveness until I began my spiritual path. In your upbringing with uh, your family and the kids at school and so <laughs> forth, was forgiveness any part of that upbringing? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Thank you for that um, really good question. Um, my, <laughs> I had two large families, and on one side of that family in particular, I learned the art of grudge holding. <laughs> <laughs> Expert, skilled, and, um, and victim narratives too. If something was done unto you, then, then <sighs> you had cause to um, fight against uh, or battle or judge or yeah, separate yourself from that other self. Um, my, one of my parents is an expert bridge builder. So on the other side of my family, however, there's a lot more softness in heart, a lot more accommodation for the errors that we inevitably make, um, a lot more space. So I had two different contrasting examples. Um, but even in the, in the side of the family where there was 
a greater practice forgiveness, which was an excellent model for me. Still, my family didn't consciously teach that value so much that I can recall. Right, right. Um, would either of the rest of you, uh, Red or Austin, like to respond to that particular query? But then we'll move on to Austin. Um, what is your take on the basic question here? Can forgiveness be a kind of healing and how? Um, I just have a couple additional perspectives on top of Red and Gary's responses. They seem to do a pretty good job covering the bases. Um, it, the line between uh, like trauma and karma and how it involves healing, it seems pretty blurry to me. Like Red said they're sort of inextricably linked. So <clears throat> focusing on uh, the healing aspect, I just would like to point out that similar to healing, forgiveness can be something that happens in an instant, or it could be a long process that takes a lot of time and introspection and work, and it could be the work of several lifetimes. So I think it's important to remember when talking about forgiveness that it's not just a decision that we make. It certainly can be, you know, there's uh, plenty of opportunity for epiphanies and uh, immediate realizations that might result in forgiveness or healing, but it's also a part of our entire journey back to the creator is experiencing processes of distortion and undistortion and uh, healing and forgiveness. And uh, the other perspective I wanted to bring up is similar to or related to the idea of it stopping the wheel of karma. Um, I think that forgiveness is a way for in a sort of um, perpetrator victim dynamic for the victim to regain some power and to be able to realize their true nature as a creator and a co-creator in any moment and have autonomy over their own journey. It's a moment where a, a so-called victim can sort of realize their own sovereignty in a moment and allow themselves to release the energetic entanglement of whatever has created the uh, trauma or the karma um, and I think that is in a way how it stops the wheel of karma. It sort of releases the uh, magnetic attraction that such a situation can create in which we then sort of draw to ourselves certain experiences based on the healing that we need. And unfortunately that <laughs> attracts catalyst to us that sort of tries to point out the healing that we need. And so then forgiveness allows us to just release that, I think, um, if it's able to be achieved. And that release is usually instantaneous, wouldn't you say? Yeah, like I said, it could, like the process might take a while, but once it's achieved, I think that um, if the true forgiveness, the true healing, um, it feels like you're in a new world. That's right. Um, I may be incorrectly perceiving it, but I believe the... Um, the Oriental or Eastern philosophy of karma isn't so instantaneous that there, this type of karma is something that it, you uh, carry with you for quite some time and it takes 
lifetimes in order to be able to overcome it, uh, or uh, I guess we would say balance it. Um, is that a perception that uh, you share too? I mean, that you have a, of the that Oriental or Eastern interpretation, Austin? And how, where do you suppose this instantaneous concept came from? Um, that's a tricky question because uh, I'm not, you know, too familiar with the culture, but I am aware there's some, especially Buddhist traditions that uh, might say something like just a single moment of anger necessitates thousands more lifetimes to um, absolve yourself of that karma. And I think just like any spiritual or rel religious tradition, there can be helpful or harmful aspects, helpful or harmful beliefs. And I think that that is along the lines of a more harmful one because it causes you to um, really uh, suppress whatever it is you're experiencing, whatever it is you're feeling, and it makes karma into a sort of uh, thing to be feared. Like you are so scared of how you act and how you behave, and you also carry this sort of guilt with you because whatever action it is, if you happen to make a mistake, you're going to be stuck with that no matter what you do for many lifetimes. So I uh, definitely don't subscribe to that notion. I do think that um, the instantaneous thing makes sense, um, not just because it seems like that is how Ra describes it, but because it's something that I've experienced, you know, personally that uh, forgiveness can immediately lift a weight. And while we can't know for sure the sort of effects that has on our subsequent lifetimes, since we are veiled and that kind of knowledge is hidden from us, um, you know, my intuitive spiritual sense is that the forgiveness that's available does resonate throughout the entirety of my being, um, past, present and future. All right, well said. Uh, Red, any uh, additional comments on this particular question or what's been said? Yeah, I was uh, really appreciating what Austin was just saying. Um, and just in reference to your most recent question about the different views on karma, um, I agree with what Austin was saying. I don't have too much experience with um, those traditions, but just when I uh, feel into it intuitively, the idea that, you know, one moment of anger could um, you know, cause me to have to um, process that for lifetimes and lifetimes feels just that whole concept feels really disempowering and like it actually takes away free will, which doesn't, it's just my sense is that it doesn't um, feel accurate. And I also have experienced, like Austin said, um, moments where it feels like something in one moment of, uh, realizing a healing of trauma or realizing a forgiveness, particularly when it happens both ways in that same moment, um, like both selves forgiving each other in a moment. It certainly feels <laughs> like, I don't know where the official karma, um, you know, logbook is, so I, I can't <laughs> see it, but it sure feels <laughs> like something can happen quite instantaneously. And that feels more along the lines of, um, you know, what I understand about free will and, and also um, not being able to predict the future, too. So, All right. Well said. Uh, Gary, how about you? Any additional comments? Yeah, I'm really appreciating the pieces that Austin and Red 
brought to the table and it synthesized a new thread of insight in me. And I risk redundancy here. I'm hoping I can tease out something uh, a little bit novel. And it's around the ideas of trauma, entanglement, and sovereignty, and attraction of catalyst. And it seems that the self who, uh, who harbors some kind of negativity or energy of separation that requires the forgiveness, that self may perceive him or herself to have to be a victim who was done unto, who's completely uh, clean in the situation. And certainly things do just befall the self. One could be going for a walk one day and a stranger um, you know, assaults or robs the person and there seems to be no connection whatsoever. Yet the mechanics of catalyst suggest that we are attracting to ourselves that which we need. And that's a, that's a difficult subject to navigate. Uh, but often, I, I don't want to say that's universally 100% true. I'll fall back to the word often. I think many times, particularly with in terms of those we work with and love and are in family and intimate relationships with, the things that happen to us um, are happening in some kind of correspondence with our pre-existing lessons and, like Red said, our own trauma. So we are given opportunities through what people seem to do to us to not just forgive them of their actions uh, from a clean slate of self, but also to, to have an opportunity to face that which is unforgiven within us or that which needs healing in terms of the wounding and the trauma. And thus, this connects to why Ross says that to forgive another necessarily includes full forgiveness of the self because that you had a response in the first place to feel negativity in some form or another um, highlights where within the self the self needs forgiveness as well so yeah thanks for the opportunity jim okay any uh, final thoughts on this question not for me okay uh then we'll go on to the next one which is is there a relationship between pre-incarnated choices and karma. And I think we've uh, gotten into this a little bit in our first question, but uh, Austin, do you have any thoughts to offer in this regard? Uh, my response is yes. <laughs> Terse. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I don't have a whole lot of background to share, but I definitely think that we build our lifetimes around the lessons that we want to learn and the healing that we would like to experience. And so when we make pre-incarnative choices, and if we have karma that is carrying over from a previous lifetime, I definitely think that we build our lives to sort of um, experience those things that would allow us to confront that karma and allow us to experience an opportunity for healing from that karma, however we, um, gained it from our previous experiences just out of curiosity this question popped into my mind what is there a level or a threshold at which uh karma would carry over i mean killing somebody would obviously be something that would carry over uh wounding someone um causing their life to be miserable for one reason or another but i wonder where does karma begin 
how much of a infringement upon another person's free will or well-being would you have to accomplish in order to carry karma over? Is there any way of determining that? It's a very interesting question. I view karma as sort of just one perspective of our sort of vibrational beingness. It's sort of um, one particular way in which our vibrational beingness can be affected. And I think that it's our vibrational beingness that sort of attracts experiences to us. And so when we talk about karma, I think we're just sort of talking about one sort of tangle in our vibrational beingness. And there are many types of tangles that can be experienced. And so also thinking about that, that vibrational beingness that attracts experiences to us, I think about it sort of as a gravity. Uh, and when talking about gravity, there can be like immense um, forces of gravity, like the sun can uh, hold our planet in place, or uh, believe it or not, a distant star has the most minute, smallest amount of gravitational effect on um, what we're doing. Or like the moon can very subtly pull the oceans uh, up into tides and release them uh, into tides. So I view the sort of journey of our soul a bit like that. There's such a intricate interplay of gravities and karma is just one sort of particular type of gravity. So I think it could be very, very small. It could be the tiniest thing that uh, maybe in our lifetime, that tiny, small distortion in our vibrational beingness makes us stub our toe. And in that moment, stubbing our toe uh, causes us to realize something about ourselves that we're able to either, you know, double down on or release. And that's sort of how I view that energetic carryover from previous lifetimes. It can be large or it can be small, but I think that basically everything we experience is affecting that vibrational beingness that attracts things to us. All right, that sounds really good. Um, Red, what are your thoughts about the relationship between uh, pre-incarnated choices and karma? Well, um, first I just wanna say I love um, Austin's analogy of the cosmos as like the, you know, the different tangles of gravitational um, effects that karma can have just as an analogy. I was personally picturing a kaleidoscope, like um, just in answer to your question about where's that threshold? When does karma actually car carry over or when is it measurable? Um, and I was picturing something very similar to the cosmos analogy where the tiniest star could have a tiny bit of gravitational pull, but I was picturing a just a constantly evolving and shifting um, kaleidoscope. Uh, it feels almost like, um, I wonder if it's really such a mathematical thing or if it's more of, um, I don't know, I'm picturing something more fluid, but I, but I agree with what I think I was hearing Austin say that even the tiniest thing will have an effect, will carry over. So um, that was one thing I wanted to share. And then in terms of the relationship between pre-incarnative choices and karma, um, I also was feeling a lot of resonance with what Austin was saying, because um, I think our pre-incarnative choices have to do with the lessons we want to learn in a given lifetime. And therefore, it would seem logical to conclude that the challenges we might program for ourselves or yeah, the things we might program for ourselves in order to learn those lessons and to know those parts of ourselves might at first 
feel traumatic when we encounter them on this side of the veil. So assuming we don't learn every lesson in full the first time, um, it also seems nearly guaranteed that we would experience life scenarios as traumatic and store them as trauma in our body um, or somewhere in our, in our system, therefore requiring the need for forgiveness at some point in order to clear that trauma and learn that lesson and know that part of ourselves. Yeah, um, it almost seems, as you were saying that, that uh, catalyst and karma are almost interchangeable terms. Hmm. Just a thought. Or at least interchangeable <laughs> concepts, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, huge overlap. Okay, Gary, uh, what are your thoughts about the relationship between pre-incarnate choices and karma? It would be an interesting topic to explore sometime, the relationship between catalyst and karma is an insightful question. So um, before replying directly to the question that you just asked, Jim, I wanted to riff a little bit more on what you were exploring with Red and Austin. And I want to explore that along just two quick concepts, one of which is magnitude and the other is progression or accumulation. And in terms of magnitude and the impact a choice may have upon the incarnate self and their multi-incarnational journey, I was imagining a situation whereby um, <clears throat> young kids are playing at war and um, they are in, enacting various scenarios of... Um, different teams being enemies with one another and in this game one kid hurts another maybe it's accidental maybe it's intentional i don't know it creates separation though and uh, interpersonal conflict and um and that has an impact and because there is anger felt in the heart and maybe that um begins or incurs some karma that will need balancing versus those same kids in an adult scenario where they are engaged in actual war, where uh, an enemy combatant is intentionally trying to take their life and they are trying to take the enemy's life and the various horrors that can occur in that scenario that can really build hate and separation and othering of the other self and the magnitude those two different situations would have, the way they would imprint upon the self and incur, as it were, an even greater magnitude or lesser magnitude of karma. And then in terms of progression, um, <clears throat> I was trying to come up with an analogy and I was thinking like, uh, say somebody one day goes and gets a great haircut and people <laughs> are looking at them differently. And it seems a small and completely inconsequential choice, but they start exploring that feeling of, wow, people are looking uh, differently at me. I can modify my body and get attention and be elevated. And then that choice leads to another choice about the way they dress and the way they relate to other people. And then they begin enjoying that energy more and uh, start behaving selfishly at the expense of other people. And um, which you know, it might lead to interpersonal conflict eventually. But that little seed idea grew into something that would necessitate or that would create a larger pattern of karma. But I don't know how much headway I made in either of those concepts. But in terms of your question, Jim, uh, what is the relationship or is there a relationship between 
pre-incarnative choices and karma. I think that um, non-forgiveness is probably one of the oldest human experiences and it's likely one of the most predominant shaping forces in human history, particularly as it contributes to systems of inequalities and suffering. Um, and one can look around the globe to see enmities that are centuries old, thousands of years old. People that if they didn't have their cultural story informing them upon birth of who they are, um, they might be very loving neighbors uh, <laughs> to their neighbors, but instead they're carrying these stories that says that group is your enemy or means you only harm. And uh, I mean, the Middle East, it's all over the world, of course, in uh, the Western world and our country as well. Uh, but the Middle East is the low hanging fruit in this example because of the enmities that are thousands of years old there and just continually carried out. So therefore, souls who are part of those various groups and um, born into a new life in one of those groups are likely to be swimming in those great collective streams of karma and thus making pre-incarnational choices, presumably, which would be seeking to alleviate that karma, but because humanity is a species that likes to repeat uh, lessons without generally learning them, that karma is not alleviated, but just blindly perpetuated. And as a closing thought, uh, Ra describes how one of our local planetary neighbors, um, the people on it, blew up their planet through bellicosity, hostility, war, and thus incurred or accrued or generated a collective karma. Everybody had then this karma to work through and as part of that healing and balancing and restitution of karma, this group incarnated on our planet in other than human forms uh, to do to alleviate that collective karma in order to rejoin the normal flow of humanity. Okay. Um... Red, do you have any uh, final thoughts on this particular topic or anything that Gary or Austin have said? I'm good, thanks. Okay, Austin, how about you? Final thoughts? None from me. Okay, Gary, final thoughts? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next question. Uh, the old saying is to forgive and forget. What part do you think that forgetting plays? Why is it necessary or is it necessary to forget? Um, Red, let's get back to you. What do you think? I actually, I really enjoy this question. It feels a little paradoxical to me. Um, then again, my partner, Brian, often says that if it isn't paradoxical, it probably isn't true. So <laughs> <laughs> um, on one hand, part of me thinks, why would I want to forget such a beautiful transformation from pain to love? And on the other hand, I think... Once I'm coming from a place of love, I have no need to hold on to the story of how I got there. Um, but I think for me, at least in my journey right now, it seems that my highest excitement 
is in remembering or somehow recording the learning and the wisdom of the transformation that got me there. So that's, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, ha- I had like such a lighthearted um, feeling when I, when I heard this question and um, yeah, that was my thoughts on it. Okay. Uh, Austin, how about you? What do you think about it? Um, it makes me think about the idea that our language is so full of these sort of sayings, these sort of things that people like to repeat. And I think that their primary value is that it just gives us an opportunity to, to bounce our thoughts off of something. Because uh, if you really get into it, there's no universal understanding of what it means to forgive and forget. So I think that it just helps us consider forgiveness in a different way. Um, I think in some instances, what this saying means and what role forgetting plays is that if you forgive and there is a full healing, a full sort of restitution between uh, you and the person who you were forgiving, then forgetting allows you to, you know, move on in your relationship without the energy of the uh, trauma or whatever it was that was experienced from that. Um, and I think it's important what Red was saying that like the the energetic signature of that transformation will still be there because hopefully if it's a full forgiveness and restitution, both of you have grown in some way. So it obviously isn't good to forget that growth, but to forget the actual event that instigated it and to uh, have that memory continue to recur. Um, but from another perspective, I think that uh, we should allow ourselves to uh, forgive but remember, because in some instances, I think it's important to realize that we can forgive somebody but still establish boundaries based on previous behavior. So our forgiveness doesn't require somebody else to change their behavior. It doesn't require somebody else to apologize. Uh, if that is a requirement that you need for forgiveness in a situation, then that is completely appropriate for you to feel. But it's possible to forgive somebody despite that person not necessarily working to earn that forgiveness. But I do think in that scenario, it's important to remember what created that wound and what uh, sort of actions or boundaries you might be able to draw in the future in order to prevent yourself from being hurt again or prevent more harm from being done and find a way to share the love uh, through forgiveness without just perpetuating the same cycles. Okay. uh, This question just popped into my mind. I'll try it on you. Uh, Is it possible to gain the benefit of forgiving another person if the other person doesn't ask for the forgiveness? Like, is it uh, possible to forgive somebody without them asking for it? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, so, you're, yeah. so you're not going to see them again. Now they're off in another country or they, they said, uh, you're out of my life. You know, goodbye. Um, is it possible to benefit from forgiving them for whatever they did that caused them to storm off in a huff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that an essential part of forgiveness is um, restitution, but it might not always be available. And I think that forgiveness is uh, something that we carry in our own hearts. 
And, you know, any grudge is something that we carry in our own hearts, especially if you never see them again, they're never going to be involved in that energetic signature in that lifetime anyways. And so uh, your cycle, whatever it is that's connecting you to them is something that can only be dealt with internally for you. And I think forgiveness would be a key part to that. Okay. I like that answer. Uh, Gary, how about you? Uh, what do you think the forgetting part plays in the forgiving and forgetting? Why is that an old saying? Usually folk sayings are based in something real. You know, they might've been distorted over the years, but they came from something. Yeah, there often is um, underneath the semantics that can trip one up when taken literally. There often is hidden meaning or some kind of insight there. And the word forget, when you look at it, to me, can land in a couple basic ways. Um, you could forget something that can later be recalled. You just you know, forgot it temporarily or for some years. Or you can forget something that you can't remember anymore. And on its face, neither form of forgetting seems uh, perfectly suited to the process of forgiving and healing. But what I take from it follows along the lines of what Red and Austin were exploring. And that's that it's not maybe it's not so much that it's being forgotten per se, but rather that the charge has been dissipated from it and it is no longer being kept alive in the present moment and the lived experience because non-forgiveness is a stuck energy. It's energy that, that wants to move into a higher expression or into integrated wholeness, but instead it's trapped somewhere in the being and it's trapped because of the the roadblock or the barrier that the self puts up because they find themselves unable to forgive. So in a way that energy is being kept alive. It's not being forgotten. So yeah, that's how that lands for me. And I wanted to say also that riff briefly on something else Austin said about forgiving even without the other person's involvement. And there was a situation in my own family between an aunt and my mother. And there was a long standing separation. My mom was actually separated from her six siblings for many years over a big family dispute. And Many years later, the aunt came around to an understanding of forgiveness, but I recall that she would say that she wasn't doing it for my mom per se, though their relationship did benefit enormously, but she was doing it for herself. Because I think often we think of forgiveness as some kind of condoning of the other person's behavior or a permission slip or... Um, a saying that what you did to me was okay. And there's a lot to explore there around okayness and free will and no mistakes and so forth. But forgiveness doesn't, isn't always about the other person exactly, but it's releasing the burden that one carries. 
because to harbor negativity or a hatred is a taxing, limiting, energy draining, uh, self-distorting situation. So to exercise the forgiveness then is to release the self from having to carry the past into the present any longer to liberate the self in order to be fully present with what is instead of having some portion of the mind or the being stuck in the past. Okay, good job. Um, any final comments from anybody on this topic? This question? I have some. Okay. I'm uh, very um, excited about these topics, um, particularly that uh, Austin started talking about when you asked the question about um, is it possible to forgive when the other person, like if the other person just leaves the country, for instance? Um, and then Austin brought up, um, you know, the is issue of boundaries. And um, in my personal experience, at least certainly over this last year, is it seems so much of the world has gotten more, um, well, we could say chaotic, perhaps. Um, I've really been exploring the relationship between uh, personal boundaries, like compassionate boundaries and empathy and compassion and forgiveness. And um, I came across a quote from Renee Brown that was really fascinating. She said, the, and, you know, she's been studying, um, you know, social uh, dynamics for years. And she said the most compassionate people that she had interviewed over the last 13 years were also the absolutely most boundaried. And I thought that was fascinating. And um, hmm. yeah. one thing she also says is that, um, that she thinks compassion and empathy are different things. That compassion is a deeply held belief that we're inextricably connected to each other by offering something rooted in love and in goodness. And that empathy is the skill set to bring compassion alive. Hmm. And yeah. in my experience, attempting empathy without necessary or healthy boundaries is misplaced at best and potentially harmful at worst. Um, but practicing empathy along with healthy boundaries and where there is no entangle it, entanglement does seem to naturally result in compassion. And so um, part of my exploration in this um, is that when someone is acting in a way that doesn't feel okay to me, I used to think that the first response should be an attempt at empathy, um, excluding, of course, cases of clear harm or abuse. And then I noticed that in order to feel empathy, I need to be able to imagine or try on, what's it like to be you? And if I'm too close to them, my attempt at empathy gets tangled with my perception of their actions and only creates more conflict or misunderstanding or stickiness or codependence or any of those fun things. And then, um, but if I create a boundary using Prentice Hemphill's definition of the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously, then I have enough space to imagine what's it like to be you without getting tangled. And when there's no entanglement, the natural result of the practice of empathy is compassion. All right. I like that a lot. Uh, any other thoughts on this question before we move on? Not for me. Nope, not for me. Okay, well, we'll get down to the personal section here now. 
Have you ever had any important personal experiences, either being able to forgive somebody else or by being forgiven by somebody else that you would like to share? Uh, Gary, since your family seems to be um, a prime <laughs> example of forgiveness or not, uh, how about you? So on the positive side, um, my wife and I, Trish, have undergone a very tumultuous, traumatic even period. And I spoke with her before this program and she gave me full green light to get as specific as I wanted to. And I, did, I don't want to get specific for the, the program, but so she uh, helped me shape an outline of what could be shared. And the the outline is that um, trust was broken, annihilated, really would be a better word for it, quite sincere, uh, severely, and which created a separation. Trish and I, very recently, were separate for six weeks, lived separately. And we thought, at the beginning, I thought for sure that our marriage of our relationship of eight and a half years, our marriage of five and a half years was done. And two things helped me to overcome that. And they both connect to forgiveness. Uh, one of which on the trust thread, I uh, Trish really dug in to do to face a, a core fundamental lie that she holds about herself and her self-worth and her value and who she is as a person and the way that manifests in our relationship. And it was such an act of courage and authenticity and vulnerability. And she showed up and communicated more honestly than I ever thought possible and, and opened the door to me to the rebuilding of trust because she was addressing these deep mechanisms. And it also opened the door for me to do similar facing of myself on my own. Thus the groundwork for the restoration of trust was begun and continues to this day. And then the other part of it was, um, or was seeing her at the soul level uh, I realized that after the the trauma and the initial hurt, I realized that whatever her actions, her heart underneath was so visible to me. She is a soul of such purity and devotion and loves me so intensely. And by that contrast, I could see the truth of her heart and I could see certain actions that were taken that were driven by unconsciousness and shadow. And through that depth of understanding, forgiveness began to enter. And I think that speaks to forgiveness on a, in a universal sense, too. When we are able to forgive another self who is perceived to have uh, injured us, we're seeing through whatever their outer behaviors may be, and we're seeing them at the soul level. We're seeing the creator within it, in them, this, the, the sacred portion of their consciousness that is like every other human in this world, failed, operating in a condition of darkness, making mistakes. And as Jesus described, they know not what they do. I think that to me is a key element of forgiveness. And then uh, finally, 
through this work that I'm describing, the rebuilding of trust, the seeing each other at the soul level through outer behaviors, it opened up a door that I've always yearned for in this life. And that is the capacity to create a container for radical truth telling. We have been working on constructing this container whereby we don't have to cut off parts of ourselves from one another or, or fragment or hide uh, our actual experience, what we may feel or think or what we may have done because it could hurt the other person or threaten the relationship. Um, instead, we are learning how to show up our full 360 degree self, including which holds a space for the hard truths too. Did you fall in love with somebody else? Did you do something? Have you acted in a way that is uh, seems to be against the relationship? Do you have doubt about uh, us or me or whatever? And paradoxically, like creating the space for that full truth telling creates a deeper intimacy and a deeper connection and communion because there's no longer a, a, a energies outside the relationship or things that can't be communicated within the relationship. And then within that space of radical truth telling, uh, there becomes the capacity for forgiveness instead of hearing, like pain is going to arise when hearing a hard or difficult truth, certainly, but instead of leading to separation or, or, or hostility or anger, there's a holding of your loved other self as a full human being sovereign on their own journey with their own free will to exercise and, and a love and a light that forgives what they may have done or said or thought. And um, it's, it's a, a piercing of the Blu-ray that I have never fully known in this life. And it's beautiful and making us stronger. And it all, I'm closing now, sorry. And it all happens on a bedrock of total loyalty and trust and devotion. We have both tested our loyalties to the maximum and done things that would destroy many a marriage. But because we have expressed our commitment to one another again and again, we know that we stand on this bedrock and, and it is the safest and most stable and supportive foundation possible. So yeah, that's what I wanted to share about my personal experiences with forgiveness. Thank Sorry. you, Gary. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. I hope you'll forgive the long. <laughs> oh, no, no problem. No problem. This is uh, worth listening to. This is what we're here for. Uh, Austin, how about you? Any personal experiences either being forgiven or forgiving another that were important to you? Um, I don't have anything to share as significant or meaningful as Gary's. Uh, for a couple of reasons. I am uh, privileged in this life to not have ever experienced any sort of deep trauma that would necessitate um, deep healing and deep forgiveness. And I also have sort of, a, I'd say, unnatural ability to let things slide, to let things roll off my back. Um, nothing sticks to me very hard. So <laughs> there's down. not a lot that I feel in my life, I need to forgive. But I will share a short story about the first time I think I genuinely experienced forgiveness and how that uh, affected my life in a relationship. And this was sort of back in high school. 
the very first real heart-based relationship I had, I think. This was uh, primarily just a, a friendship. Um, uh, it was somebody I cared for deeply. We had an intensely deep connection, but we were high schoolers. And so we were um, a lot stupider than we thought we were. And uh, she sort of on the turn of a dime sort of turned against me for really dumb reasons and just uh, really hurt me in a lot of ways, like disrupted my life. And um, it was a real wounding because it was the first heart relationship I had. And that relationship where it was deeply planted in my heart was then like uprooted really strongly. Um, and then uh, eventually she moved away and left the state and uh, I was left with that wound. And then like a few years later, uh, after we had both graduated from high school and we were both trying to figure out adulthood, she moved back into the state and um, I hadn't communicated with her, but randomly uh, she reached out and wanted to meet up. And I was still carrying this around. And uh, once we met, we didn't discuss anything at all. There was no real attempt at restitution or working things through but I just felt in my heart that like we're at a point where I can just let go of whatever happened between us and I did in a moment and uh, without ever discussing it we fell right back into that heart relationship and it was a really beautiful time in my life and um, it also allowed me to uh you know, experience freedom myself from this entanglement and give her freedom. And eventually she moved away again. And while I was sad, I just felt the, uh, our relationship benefited from just the ability to let go and release entanglements in that way. And um, it was a really um, meaningful time in my life and a really meaningful relationship. So um just a small example of my real first experience at forgiveness. Okay, thank you, Austin. Uh, Red, how about you? Any experiences like this for you, either being forgiven or forgiving another? Yeah, I, th I think what I want to share is more of like a, just a, it feels like a trajectory of forgiveness over maybe like the last year. I mean, yeah, very, very much the last year of my life. Um, certainly before then, but it's like, um, I'm taking some AP classes in it now. So, um, I've, um, one of my favorite quote quotes is one that ends with, why would you wish to place yourself in a position of unknowing? My friends, you wish to learn and you wished to serve and above all you wished to choose. And of all these and all of these things needed to be done by faith, faith in things unseen and unprovable. And over the past year, I've kind of turned that into a game. Um, and by that, I mean, I got to the point where sometimes reminding myself that I came here specifically to find my open heart through these challenges and to learn about myself with the help of my other selves that reminding myself of that was the only way I could survive without shutting down sometimes. One of the, so I've talked a bit about um, how all of these ideas of forgiveness and karma, how I've been thinking about them 
in the microcosm, through the macrocosm, personally, interpersonally, and specifically through community. That's been a lot of my exploration lately. In my own experience of community, um, about nine months ago, I got some feedback from my community um, that was very, very, very hard to hear. And that was pointing to, um, I guess, shadow in me that I wasn't able to see. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of why we're here, right? To, um, to see ourselves through the mirrors of our other selves and to help them show, to have them help us see the parts of ourselves that we can't see. Anyway, this feedback that I got from my community was devastating. Um, and even though it was given with love, it was still so um, strong and devastating that I felt like I was, there was part of me that kind of got the message that I was wrong or bad. And that was all me. Like I, I made that meaning of it. But what I discovered was that only by acknowledging that I actually did the things they were pointing out, could I see that it wasn't really me who did them, like not the real me. And that's when I started to really understand the flip side of the, um, one of the sentences in the raw quote that you opened with Jim from session 18 is forgiveness of other self is forgiveness of self. And Ra implies it, but doesn't explicitly say the opposite, which is also true, that forgiveness of self is forgiveness of other self. And for me, that was where I had to start with a lot of this community feedback, because I think um, I'd been so focused on trying to like be good and do right that I was very focused on my external world and I wasn't watching so much what was actually happening in me. And, um, when I turned my attention more inward and just began to study me, um, I, I just saw how very unforgiving I was to myself. Like I had an easier time forgiving others than I did forgiving myself. But if I wasn't also forgiving myself, then I wasn't really forgiving the others. And that's what I really started to see. And so in making a game of walking through the world, knowing that I came here because I wanted to do this by faith, I find that as long as I give attention to any trauma that comes up instead of bypassing it, that it's getting easier and easier to move through life with faith and from a place of love. In fact, it's even sometimes becoming fun as I discover how consistently rewarding it is, how free my heart feels when I assume the best about not only other selves, but myself. It, it astounds me actually how quickly situations can seem to change sometimes. And I'm reminded of the raw quote that, to the truly balanced entity, no situation would be emotionally charged. And while I'm certainly not a truly balanced entity yet by a long shot, I do think I'm beginning to taste what Ra is referring to there. And as we've been working on this here as a community in Asheville, one example of the kind of healing through mutual forgiveness that lights me up is that 
my recent uh, ex-husband of 20 years and I are navigating the details of everything, like our divorce, finances, childcare, everything, with the support and sometimes mediation of our community, including his current partner, who I consider a dear and trusted friend of mine, and who was also one of the people that gave me that feedback nine months ago. So um, getting to this point has taken many, many, many personal and interpersonal deep dives into the heart. And I can sense it building a collective heart, like a community heart. In fact, I'd say healing interpersonally and forgiveness and clearing karma are some of the biggest things moving at least for me, and it feels to me like for the whole Asheville community right now, and actually the world, um, I, I personally sometimes find it exhausting, but when we keep showing up, I also experience it as so rewarding that it feels like I'm fulfilling my life's purpose. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Red. Mm -hmm. um, in my own personal experience, um, after Carla passed away uh, a little over five years ago, within a few months after contemplating her uh, absence and realizing that no, long, no matter how long you live, uh, life seems short and that things that have been left undone need to be done. So I had a handful of people that I felt that I had uh, wronged in some way or other and that I needed to reach out to them and to ask their forgiveness. And in each case, I was just so overwhelmed by their willingness to forgive me that every time it felt like a huge weight was being lifted from my shoulders that I didn't even know was there before. I, I was a much lighter being afterwards. And uh, the forgiveness was like a balm for my soul. And I think that that was part of the intensification of my spiritual journey that was uh, occurring right after Carla passed away. It was uh, something that I had not anticipated at all. I mean, I didn't know what to think about after Carla passed away, what life was going to be like. But for some reason, I imagine it was probably a pre-incarnative choice that her passing was like um, the signal for me to begin to be more responsible in my relationships with everybody and especially with the people that I had had some difficulty with. I had uh, infringed upon their free will or their well-being in some fashion. So uh, each of them, uh, like I said, uh, just surprised me no end as to how willing they were to forgive. And uh, it was such a blessing to me. I think that being forgiven is probably um, one of the greatest blessings in uh, one's life. And, I'm afraid that most of us at some point, as you guys have pointed out, uh, need to be forgiven because we're, we're mortals. You know, as Carla said, our feet are feet of clay all the way up to our necks. Uh, we are bozos on this bus, even though we are the one creator, full, whole, and perfect in that regard. So um, I hope that uh, people listening will not be afraid to ask uh, for forgiveness or to grant forgiveness because I think that's probably one of the most intimate and inspiring things that we can do with another human being on this planet. Any final thoughts on personal experiences? Well then, how about tackling our very last question? It, uh, since we've had these um, 
riots in Louisville and across the country of racial injustice attempting to be faced full on and find some solution to. I've been wondering what we can do as individuals that might be helpful in this uh, type of an experience because uh, I remember way back in the 60s, this came up, you know, it's come up time and again, and it has not been resolved. And it feels now like this is the time. This needs to happen. And the only quote I could find in uh, The Raw Contact was in uh, 26, where Don asked, um, and then you, can you describe the mechanism of planetary healing? And Ra said, healing is a process of acceptance, forgiveness, and if possible, restitution. The restitution not being available in time space there are many among your peoples now attempting restitution while in the physical. Question, uh, how do these people attempt this restitution in the physical? And then Ross said, these attempt feelings of love towards the planetary sphere and comfort and healing of the scars and the imbalances of these actions. Now, I'm aware of how we can all help any situation by uh, meditating upon it, by sending love and light, and by um, making it a focus of our lives to do that on a regular basis. I know that's something metaphysically or spiritually that can be done. I'm just wondering, uh, I know we could also get out there and uh, be on the lines of the peaceful uh, um, protests. Do you all have any other ideas that might be practically useful? Um, Gary, what are your thoughts? It's a good question we should all be asking ourselves right now. And I see myself in a position of wanting to listen to and learn from others um, on this question more than share my own thoughts. But as you note, Rightly, we can meditate, we can send love and light, because as Red said, the microcosm is the macrocosm. So any healing we do in our own heart necessarily helps to heal the collective. But um, in terms of outward action that we can take with society, I think we can model forgiveness in whatever the scope of our own social sphere is. I think we can avoid bellicosity in our language, no matter how upset we are about what the other side is doing. And you know, that doesn't mean that if you do have bellicose energies that you should artificially suppress them. You know, there's no wrong way to express the self. But um, I particularly in my own journey of trying to wrap my mind around what's happening right now. I see lots of videos of police brutality and it, um, I feel my own energies of hostility arise in response. And uh, part of me wants to go on a crusade or, you know, show the wrongdoers what they're doing wrong. And while meaningful, uh, and deep and significant reform is needed on so many levels. I think that the whole process, and I can't speak to what others need to do, but just what 
the ideas are in my head. I think the whole process needs to be built on energies of exactly what Ross said in the quote you read, Jim, about acceptance and restitution. And toward that end, I saw a great interview um, with Van Jones. I think his primary occupation is that he is a CNN anchor or... or um, Anyway, brilliant, articulate thinker and a member of the African-American community. And he reflected on the historical experience of African-Americans and his, his personal experience and uh, his hope and optimism for ways forward. And he said something, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said he just hopes that like... Uh, a space would be facilitated, say the White House, <laughs> invited various groups together to just talk it out. Like they, they have Black Lives Matter uh, there and protesters and the NRA and the cops and you know other groups that you can think to name. And we all just cry it out together uh, in light of certain passions that, and divides that exist within these groups it might seem naive, but that is what uh, the spiritual seeker is embarked upon is the quixotic quest. And it made such a deep sense to me to just, um, you know, among uh, warring or divided factions, there's ultimately so much pain and wounding and inability to talk to the, the person with whom you're locked into dispute and inability to release that pain through crying. And I think that that action uh, helps all the various sides to connect on their common humanity and their common ultimately values. We all have a great diversity of values and how we feel society should be structured and so forth. But ultimately, I mean, the Buddha's fundamental realization upon awakening was that everybody wants to be happy. But simultaneously, everybody is getting in, uh, paraphrasing, getting in the way of their own happiness or not knowing how to achieve it. So cross-party platform, refraining from uh, bellicosity, and I know more is going to come to me. But uh, finding ways to support other people and to listen particularly on this, the moment that we're in right now, this is June 2020 for any who may listen to the podcast years down the road and the country has erupted really the world in widespread protests sparked by yet another unarmed black man killed by the cops. His name was George Floyd in this case, and he seems to have provided a, a tipping point. And it's really awakened a mass movement and a, the conscience of the country. And I think specific to this moment, uh, those who are not minorities in a majority uh, white country need to do a lot more to listen uh, to the stories and experiences, particularly of black and brown people or people of color, and to, and finally, um, to really actively practice anti-racism, to be not, to be complacent and 
not just to say, well, I know I'm not racist, so you know I'm doing my part, but to intentionally pursue a path of anti-racism and to have the talk within our own uh, uh, demographic, within our own white community, uh, to really bring it out into the surface and not let it lie hidden and out of sight or pretend that we're in a, a world that's post-racial and we don't see color because uh, racism is systemic, it's institutional, it exists. And those biases, as clean as we may make our own hearts and as much as we may try to see the creator in all beings, we still have this programming and conditioning that we're born into. We, we it literally, we, nobody can avoid it and it, it exists within us too. So I think it behooves us to root it out. But anyway, just uh my riff thank you gary that was very good uh red how about you what are your thoughts in this area well um first yeah given uh, i really appreciate the uh what gary was saying about the importance right now of uh white people listening to people of color and so along those lines i just want to acknowledge that there are four white people on this call and no people of color and while I think it would be great to have a more diverse range of perspectives in response to this question, for now it feels good to simply acknowledge that we do have a limited range of perspectives on this call. And that said, here's my perspective. Um, when I look at the systemic issues that cause racism and inequality, I find things like control, gaslighting, elitism, ableism, brutality, um, which all seem to me to be potential tools on the path of service to self or tools of separation. And if I want to support transmuting those energies in the collective, for me, I find I need to first be aware of how those energies are operating within me, um, how they manifest in my most intimate relationships, and then in my social relationships, and then in my community, etc. Um, there's a quote sometimes attributed to Mother Teresa that says something like, if you want to heal the world, go home and love your family. And what that brings up for me is that if we can't fully love our siblings or our exes or our parents or our children because they think differently or we don't approve of them or we feel judged by them, then how can we hope to resolve more macrocosmic issues? So I'm, and I'm not, I'm certainly not saying don't go out and be an advocate or an activist, but I am saying that if we're not also doing the inner work and interpersonal work in our homes, in our communities, and in our hearts, then maybe that needs focus before we try and affect change in the world from a potentially ungrounded place. So I guess the crux of my answer is the first thing I think we could all do is to find all of the places in us where the scary things we see in the world also live and to know and love and accept those parts of ourselves so that we can go into the world and take action from the most grounded, open-hearted, integrated, and powerful place possible. That's excellent. Uh, in fact, that reminds me of the uh, saying of Gandhi, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what you're saying. Austin, how about you? What are your thoughts? Well, I had prepared a response, but basically everything I had prepared has been spoken to in one way or another. So I'm going to try to speak off the cuff a little bit more. 
but I think I appreciate what Red brought up that the four of us are speaking from a specific perspective. And I think that's one step that everybody needs to take when entering this discussion is acknowledging what perspective we are speaking from. Uh, no matter what that perspective is, acknowledge it and understand what it means in these very complicated social dynamics. So as a, a white person speaking about this, I have absolutely no lived experience of the deep distortions of, you know, systemic and institutional racism that exists in our society. So when especially talking along the lines of forgiveness, it's really important to ask what sort of role do I have in this dynamic of forgiveness? What is mine to forgive and what uh, can I do? And I think it's also important to acknowledge that, you know, pushing forgiveness upon somebody else saying that or calling for forgiveness um, might not always be the healthiest way to approach something. Uh, so trying to figure out what our particular role is and what we ourselves can do is really important. And um, uh, you all sort of highlighted the things that I had brought up. One of them particularly was listening, like Gary talked about. Um, I think it's really important to acknowledge your lived perspective within the society and then acknowledge that uh, there are cultural biases and cultural experiences within that, and that other people have their own lived experiences that are both individual and cultural and collective. And while there are uh, many numbers of outward identifiers that these can be based on, race is a massive one within our society. And so intentionally seeking out those voices and not necessarily directly, uh, but there are tons of resources to look into just to get the a feel for the other lived perspective that you have not been able to experience in your own life. And doing so with a certain perspective, I don't think it's helpful to sort of go into it with a truth-seeking or objective truth-seeking mentality where you read it and then you kind of analyze it and pick it apart and try to find statistics and stuff like that. I think it's important to enter that with the mentality of you are just opening your heart to another person who has had a different experience and to allow that experience to then live in your heart and allow that to affect you. And um, in doing so, and just continuing to do so, I think it will sort of change your own perspective and affect how you interact with the world and how you approach discussions like this. And then the another aspect that uh, you brought up, Jim, is uh, restitution, I think, is an important part of forgiveness. Um, you know, Rod talked about a couple different uh, karma dynamic situations and restitution was part of that process it wasn't a simple letting go of whatever wounds have been inflicted and then everything is okay there is healing that has to be actively done to help bring things to light and bring things to um, an equal level <clears throat> and so each of us can do something uh, that 
can help influence restitution, to help heal the wounds, to help um, figure out where the wounds are in our society and to address them more directly in what ways are possible. And we're probably never going to be perfect in the ways that we do that, but it's important to continue trying to bring healing where healing is needed and to continue to listen and alter our perspectives. And then a final point I wanted to bring up is that um, I sometimes see a perspective brought to this conversation that I would consider spiritual bypassing. And that is the sort of dismissal of the idea of racial issues or any other similar issues that um, distinguish us and make us distinct from other human beings. Uh, I see it dismissed with this concept that we have in the law of one where everything is one, we are all one. And there's this idea that trying to acknowledge the differences between us is reinforcing separation. And I think that that is uh, at its heart, uh, while maybe not necessarily poorly intentioned, it does bypass a really significant issue that we have going on in the world. And I think it's important to recognize that you know, all of us suffer from the system that we are born into on this planet. Like Ra said, that um, uh, I think the exact quote is, at the present space-time, the condition of well-meant and unintentional slavery are so numerous that it beggars our ability to enumerate them. So th the system that we are in is so oppressive that I doubt any of us really escape from it. But there's also different perspectives and different sort of energetic dynamics within this system. <clears throat> and Ra also said that it is the way of distortion that in order to balance a distortion, one must accentuate it. So I think it's appropriate for us to be looking at one of the most significant distortions within our society at this moment, that being the uh, individual and systemic institutional racism that is very present and alive in our world and uh, to bring attention to it, which is the accentuation that I think Ra talks about, so that it can then be healed and balanced. And then um, we can continue the work uh, trying to figure out what those other innumerable forms of unintentional slavery are and the other ways that we're being harmed. So Nice job, Austin. Uh, that yeah, was uh, off the cuff. I'm, I'm sure it's uh, from the heart. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is certainly a, a difficult issue, and as soon as I became aware of the riots that were occurring, I wished with all my heart that Muhammad Ali was still alive, because I think that he could communicate with everybody. He was, he lived his life, the end of his life, uh, working for racial equality and equality for all people everywhere. And... Um, I think there was one other person who actually did this uh, along the lines of what you spoke of, Gary, the uh, commentator from CNN and said, well, let's get to the White House and let's all cry it out together. Well, I believe that that's what happened in 1994 in South Africa uh, when uh, Nelson Mandela began the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He had been in jail for 27 years because he was fighting against apartheid in the 60s and leading um, revolts here and there. 
And uh, so they sentenced him to, uh, well, they didn't put any limit on it. They eventually let him out after 27 years. But he said that after 27 years in jail, he discovered who he was and what he believed in. And it was equality for everyone. So he became the first uh, elected black president of South Africa in 93, and then began this Truth and Reconciliation Commission in which both the perpetrators and the victims were able to come to the table. And this commission was made up of all kinds of people, uh, activists, uh, people in the, uh, the community, just uh, community leaders in the government, in the armed forces, uh, lower levels of armed forces. And there were 19,000 victims that had the opportunity to testify as to how they've been victimized. And people were killed indiscriminately. They were abducted. Their houses and homes were burned. The atrocities were unimaginable. And there were about 1,500 perpetrators, uh, men in the army that had been involved in what they called uh, you know, the war. Uh, they came and asked forgiveness. And what seemed to come from it was uh, the general feeling that there was the chance for equality for everyone. Because as Nelson Mandela said, uh, I have fought against white rule and I will fight against black rule only. We are all members of this country and we all have a right to say, have a say in it. So around the world, it was looked at as a success, even though those people who benefited from apartheid, the high members of uh, former government, the high uh, army officials said, no, we were fighting a just war. We have no need to ask your forgiveness. So not everybody participated, but in general, it was seen as an amazing opportunity for everybody to be heard and for forgiveness to be given to those who ask for it. Now, I have no idea how that could really happen in this country, but it happened there and the conditions were even worse. So I'm hopeful that there can be some kind of communication that results in each community sitting down with the various leaders of the government, of the police, of the activists, any group that wants to partake and have an input so that this might in some fashion be able to happen in our country. We are supposed to be, you know, the United States of America made up of uh, immigrants from every country in the world. And uh, it hasn't panned out here. That's not the way that immigrants are looked at these days. But I still think there are enough people who are willing to do the work that something like this could happen. And for every one of us, as uh, Muhammad Ali's wife, Lonnie, said in her beautiful article she had in the Career Journal about a week ago, she said, uh, Muhammad Ali would say one thing for sure. Each of you has the right to go vote. And on the 23rd of this month, you have your chance to be heard. Go vote. So that's one other thing that we can do. Any final thoughts on this final question? Yeah, I just wanted to um, piggyback a little bit off of what Austin was saying about the importance of um, not spiritually bypassing and the importance of um, 
Yeah, not getting stuck when people say things like, let's just move beyond color. Let's, you know, we're beyond race. We're beyond that. Because um, I feel like what we're being offered here is a chance to <clears throat> break from the consensus, the consensus narrative completely enough to be able to recognize and hear and speak our own voice clearly in order to be the most able and ready to join with others in sovereign unity. It's like... Um, I kind of feel like it's the whole portal that is third density. It's like we want to move from the non-individuated ecosystems of second density to the social memory complexes consisting of individuated entities of fourth, fourth density, or at least that's my understanding of it. And so it's like we first have to separate ourselves from the group enough in order to discover our uniqueness and our unique gifts and then work together to harmonize those unique gifts with the unique gifts of our other selves to form a more self-aware ecosystem. Um, and so what I hear when I hear Austin say, you know, that we want to be careful not to spiritually bypass, I feel like when people want to move right to unity and say, no, we're, we're all the same, you know, we're, um, we have no differences. It's kind of like they're advocating for, I actually hear an advocating for, almost moving backwards to second density um, where there's no differentiation. And so, um, yeah, I have a lot of excitement for discovering how we're all unique and how we're all different so that we can harmonize those uniquenesses in a way that um, is uplifting to everyone. Well said, well said. Any more comments about the final question? I have a couple riffs and that's that I think what makes the racial inequality systemic and institutional is that it becomes invisible to those the system benefits, i.e. generally white people. And while it becomes very visible to those, it exerts an oppressive force on, i.e. black people or people of color. So part of the work I see for all communities, especially especially the white community, is to make it visible, is to talk about it, is to bring it um, to the surface so that it cannot continue operating in the background or dismissed. And part of that specifically, for me at least, is understanding how white privilege works. It's a concept that prior to this moment in our history, I hadn't really paid much attention to. Um, but because of everything that's been brought to light, thanks to the voices of so many and the protesters on the streets and the disturbing things that uh, I've seen, I am coming into a more acute awareness of the way that the system just silently or invisibly and inherently uh, benefits my skin color. You know, I don't have the experience of having the worry that black people do if I'm pulled over or if I go in for a job interview, I'm not thinking about my skin color among a a million other permutations. And then to tie into my second and final thought, um, like naturally I can't tell anybody else of any Uh, skin color, how to relate to this moment. But to me, the highest perception that 
and the most healing perception that I can imagine one bringing to the table is uh, an, a necessary focus on on how we are all the one creator, not as a mechanism of bypassing like all the differences, all the inequalities, all the injustices need seen, they need discussed, they reform needs to be enacted, honest, raw conversation needs to happen. But um, particularly for the student of spiritual evolution, one can always begin and end in the creator as Ra described. And I wanna read a couple sentences from a book it's a thin volume that I recently revisited, and it's by Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish survivor of concentration camps, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he used the word man at the time, the way it was used as a universal uh, um, way to denote humankind in general. At the end of his book, he says, our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer or the Shema Yisrael on his lips. And really shook me reading that. And I apply it to the situation and I as best I can. And I see uh, Derek Chauvin, I think was his name, who held his knee over George Floyd's neck for eight minutes as the creator. And I see George Floyd, the one who suffered and lost his life as the creator. And I think that, that fundamental understanding can only help to inform and clarify and inspire whatever processes we undertake. Yes, thank you, Gary. That's the uh inclusive point of view in the widest possible interpretation and we do need to remember that we are all the creator and we're all here to learn from each other and this might be one of the most important and intensive times of learning that we have ever encountered in this country any final thoughts today not for me thanks for hosting this jim and asking these questions thank you my pleasure you've been listening to elena researches the law of one podcast we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find more from LNL Research at llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. A special thank you to Red, to Austin, and to Gary for joining me today. If you've got a question or topic you'd like for us to discuss, please read the instructions at www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast. In conclusion, let us all forgive ourselves for our personal failings, and then let us all forgive each other for the same. The road to the fourth density of love and understanding for planet Earth is paved with compassion and forgiveness. We love you all and look forward to talking to you next time. <laughs>